for the first time, we actually saw a decrease in the death rate from cancer in this country, and it almost is completely due to improvement in survival of lung cancer, which is almost completely due to immunotherapies. Immunotherapy has changed the way cancer is being treated. This episode of ScopeMD is specifically designed for healthcare workers who are not oncologists, as well as cancer patients and their family members who are curious about immunotherapy. My guest today is Dr. Joe Leach, oncologist at Minnesota Oncology. We will discuss the history of immunotherapy, what cancers are currently being treated with immunotherapy, the confusing topic of PDL1 testing, and finally, we'll end our conversation discussing the future of immunotherapy. I hope you enjoy this episode of Scope MD. Dr. Leach, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So maybe the first question I'll ask you is, what does the term immunotherapy mean? Well, it's a pretty broad term, uh, and it's been around for a long time, although what we mean by it now has really changed because we have for the first time, really effective immunotherapy drugs. And we'll talk about what we mean by effective. But essentially, it is any treatment that is getting the immune system to work to treat whatever disease we're targeting, in this case, cancer. So trying to get the immune system to help us fight cancer that's already established. So you had you mentioned we've had it for a while. How long have we had it? Well, there have been attempts to find ways to get the immune system to fight cancer for decades. I mean, it's been a focus of many careers. Probably the best known method is is bone marrow transplants. And so people think about bone marrow transplant as treatments for things like leukemia, but what it really is doing is giving the person with leukemia a new immune system that's different from their own, that will now recognize leukemia as foreign and kill it off. So that's probably the most well-known established immunotherapy before we had all of these newer and fancier drugs that are advertised on TV all the time. So how is, for example, a drug like Keytruda different than a bone marrow transplant? So a bone marrow transplant is sort of the brute force method to getting the immune system to work. So let me back up. So two things have to happen for you to get in trouble with cancer. Number one, a cell that was doing its job as it was making a copy of itself screwed up and made some errors in its DNA programming. And now we have a cancer cell that isn't functioning like a normal cell. It's growing too fast and living too long. All the bad things that cancers are supposed to do. But we have a system that should keep that in check, which is the immune system, which should recognize those cells as foreign. And the reason for that is because when these new genes are formed, these mutations, they cause proteins to be expressed on these cells that are different from us. So it's been thought we probably get cancer all the time. The immune system wipes it out before it ever gets a chance to get established. And so when cancer runs amok, your immune system has just failed you. So a bone marrow transplant basically gives you an entirely new immune system to try to get the immune system to do its job. Of course, that has lots of downsides because that new immune system now recognizes the good stuff is bad too. And so that has lots of complications and risks. The newer drugs like Keytruda, which is probably the most well-known because it's advertised a lot, basically tries to be much more targeted in doing that. And so one of the things that all of these decades of research has led scientists to discover is that one of the reasons the immune system stops working is not because the immune system isn't functioning, it's because the cancer cells are hiding. And so to prevent our immune systems from attacking the good parts of our bodies, what we call autoimmunity, Our normal cells express a protein that lets our immune cells know that it's part of us. 
So the immune system gets revved up by a virus and decides, I think I'm going to start attacking my lungs. Our lung cells have a protein that tells our immune system that these are not the virus and sort of hands off. Cancers can do the same thing. And so cancer cells can express this protein that tells our immune systems that it's part of us and sort of trick the immune system into thinking that these are good cells and we shouldn't attack them. And so all drugs like Keytruda do is basically cover up either the protein on the cancer cell or the protein that recognizes that protein on the immune cells so that the cancer cells can't hide and literally just lets the immune system do what it was supposed to do in the first place. So is that what the term PDL and PDL1 mean? Because that's a source of confusion for healthcare workers. Yeah, exactly. So the reality is it's much more complex because there's more than just this one protein, but the one protein that has been the breakthrough is this discovery of, of PDL1. And so PDL1 stands for programmed death ligand 1, which is a horrible sounding term, uh, but it's it's sort of the opposite of, of what it sounds like. It actually prevents programmed death. And so our cells exhibit this protein that prevents the immune systems from attacking it. And then cells called T cells, a really important part of our immune system, especially for recognizing cancer, has a receptor protein called PD1. And so when that protein on the T cell comes in contact with this protein on the cancer cell, it sort of turns those T cells off. And so we talk about testing for PDL1, looking for are the cancer cells literally producing this protein that's allowing them to hide. And when did drugs like this first become available on the market? It's only been about five years, which is sort of hard to believe because it seems like they've been around forever, but but really not that long. And and even in clinical development, they haven't been around that long. You know, we we took part in some of the very early clinical trials when they were still in phase one with a lot of these drugs. In the time to starting these studies, the time of approval was really fast. It was only three or four years. So they haven't really been around that long. So there's still a lot we're learning. And how have they changed your practice? I would say they have probably been the most important breakthrough I've seen in oncology in my 20 plus years of doing this job for some people. So so the great thing about these drugs is when they work, I, I mean, they're sometimes referred to as a miracle. They really are. Uh, so when these drugs work for for your cancer, a lot of people don't have typical side effects we think about with cancer treatment. So they don't make you sick to your stomach or lose your hair or cause low blood counts, any of that kind of stuff. They do have some side effects, which we can talk about. But we have some patients who are involved in these early phase one trials who are still cancer free. We're talking six going on seven years now and just living pretty normal lives. And so the biggest advantage of these treatments is unlike a drug, you know, anytime you use a drug that targets the cancer, cancers aren't aren't smart, but they always work around it. So the drugs eventually stop working. The immune system has an infinite ability to adapt as the cancer adapts. And so it is the essential living drug. And so when they work, and again, we don't know because we haven't had these drugs for 20, 30 years, but we think maybe they work forever for some people. So it has been a phenomenal breakthrough for people where they work. Can you talk a little bit about what cancers these therapies are most effective in? Well, it's a growing list, and so it's starting to get easier to talk about which ones they don't work in than, than the ones they do. The the ones where I would say they have been the most important, melanoma clearly is the, the biggest and probably most well-known, mainly because of Jimmy Carter, right? So everybody knows the story of Jimmy Carter and how he had melanoma spread to his brain, and he's still out building houses, I think, or whatever Jimmy Carter's doing in his retirement. Um, and so melanoma is where these drugs first became available and where they've really been 
just incredibly life-changing. And the other is lung cancer. There was a report from the American Cancer Society, uh, you know, just earlier this year, you know, every year we hear all these statistics about cancer survival. So for the first time, we actually saw a decrease in the death rate from cancer in this country, and it almost is completely due to improvement in survival of lung cancer, which is almost completely due to immunotherapy. So those are the two where it's been most important, but the list where we use them is growing, bladder cancer, stomach cancer, esophageal cancer, some types of breast cancer, some types of colon cancer, liver cancer. I mean, it's a long list. So it has some role in, frankly, most cancers now. So one of the areas of confusion is which cancers require a test and which don't. Can you talk a little bit about where that originates from? Well, so some of that originates from just the way these studies were designed. Historically, when we've looked at designing cancer trials, we've tried to go away from sort of the old-fashioned way of doing things where you take chemotherapy X and you treat every cancer Y with the same drug, and then you find out where it works. Because we know that these drugs are not that generalized, especially some of the targeted therapies that we use. And so one of the important things when we're developing new drugs is to find what we call a biomarker, some test that tells us where these drugs are most effective. And so when these studies were being designed, you know, it just sort of makes sense. If these drugs work on this PDL1 protein, then looking at cancers where the PDL1 protein is present would make the most sense. And so some of the studies required the PDL1 protein to be present and some didn't. So it turns out that PD-L1 itself, for some reason, is really not a very good biomarker for telling if the treatment is not going to work. And so what I mean by that is we know that some people, even if we can't find any PD-L1, a lot of times these drugs still work. But if there's PD-L1 present and if there's a lot of it, the likelihood of it working is much higher. So for example, in stomach cancer, you know, which was a relatively recent approval, the way the studies were designed is they required at least some presence of this PD-L1 protein present on the cancers. And so when the FDA approved the drug, because that's the way the study was designed, that's how it got approved. The reality is, if you had redone that study without that requirement, it probably would have worked anyway. So some of it just depends on how the studies were designed. Can you give the drug without testing? Or are these really mandates where you have to test before you give the drug? So that's where it depends on the cancer. So again, stomach cancer, if we don't have the test showing some expression, we're not going to get approved by insurance. The same is true of a type of breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer, which is a very aggressive, although not as common type of breast cancer. The studies require that some of that protein be present, but other cancers like melanoma, for example, you don't really need to. So so sometimes we test for it, sometimes we don't. Now, sometimes we test for it because it may not tell us for sure that the treatment won't work, but it will give us an idea of how likely it is that the treatment will work. And so, for example, in lung cancer, we know that people who have very high amounts of this protein, if I use a drug like Keytruda, it's very likely to work and I don't have to do anything else. If the protein level is really low or if there's no protein at all, Keytruda by itself, it can still work, but it's much less likely. I know that I can make the treatment work better if I give it with chemotherapy. So sometimes it's important when we're trying to decide exactly which treatments to use. The other area of confusion I've noticed is that different tumors use different cells determining the pdl one status, and then they also use different scoring systems. So as an oncologist, is it hard to keep all of that straight? 
Yeah, it's really hard, actually. And, and a lot of that is unfortunately just sort of an artifact of the way we do drug development, not just in this country, but in the world. And so there were a whole bunch of drug companies trying to develop their own version of these drugs. And some of them do things a little bit differently. So Keytruda, for example, blocks the protein on the T cell, so the receptor. Some of the drugs, like one called atezolizumab, block the protein on the tumor. But essentially, they're doing the same thing. And so each of these drugs then developed its own test. And so that has made things extremely confusing, especially especially for, for pathologists, as you know, because some of them look at the immune cell expression, some look at the tumor cell expression, they have different kinds of scores. So it's really, unfortunately, made things much more complex than it needs to be. Where it really is important is sometimes if we order the wrong test, when I try to get the drug approved, the insurance company will say, well, you didn't do the right test. We're not going to prove it. So it can really delay things. Is it hard to explain all these nuances to the patient? Because it's pretty complicated. It, yeah, it is pretty complicated. Um, you know, I, I think for patients, the idea that they're getting their immune system to work, and, and I, I don't know that we need to, with patients, I don't usually get too much into the weeds with this kind of stuff, but just the idea of, of your own body fighting the cancer is so appealing versus you know, using sort of the napalm bomb approach, which we've used for decades with things like chemotherapy and radiation. So, you know, patients really like the idea of using immunotherapy, but I think, unfortunately, it has been a bit oversold because, you know, it doesn't work for everyone. And sometimes it's not the best treatment. Sometimes there are better treatments than immunotherapy. So we sometimes have to be careful that we have realistic expectations about what these drugs can do too. What about really rare tumors, just because they're, the number of them is so small? Are there attempts to use immunotherapy, or do we have to wait until there's enough to be studied? Yeah, it's, it is real, that is an area where it's really hard. Uh, so again, a lot of it comes down to insurance, you know, and so trying to use these drugs, what we call off-label, because they are so expensive, usually insurance companies won't and, and probably, frankly, shouldn't cover them until we know for sure if they work. But it can be really difficult to tell a patient where they have a cancer, or frankly, it might be a reasonable thing to look at, but we just can't even try it because we just can't get it. So we always try to have clinical trials available for these patients whenever possible. And there's still a lot of research being done into immunotherapy. And so when possible, we offer them clinical trials, but sometimes that's just not an option. So that can be a challenging conversation to have with patients. I know we haven't had these drugs very long, but are there side effects or are there concerns that some patients might develop resistance? Well, in terms of side effects, unfortunately, there there can be side effects. What I tell my patients is these drugs are really easy until they're not, and then they're really hard. And so the side effects that we see with these drugs by and large are things where the immune system gets overly active. And so we talked about we don't want the immune system to be overactive because that can cause autoimmunity. And unfortunately, that is a side effect of these drugs. Now, I will say much less, though, than sort of the older, less primitive types of immune treatments, which really this was a huge problem. And so fortunately, the immune-mediated toxicities, basically the induced autoimmune side effects of these drugs, are, are fairly uncommon, but they can be 
catastrophic when they happen. And so the immune system can literally attack any organ in the body when you're on these drugs. And we've seen some really unusual presentations. We've had patients develop the immune system attacking the spinal cord, causing paralysis. I've had patients where it's attacked the brain, the adrenal glands, the lungs, the colon. So literally any autoimmune disease that's ever been described can be replicated when you're on these drugs. So it has made it a challenge because you really have to be aware of side effects that you wouldn't normally think about. And endocrinologists have been the oncologist's best friend in helping manage some of these kinds of things now. But fortunately, those serious side effects are, are pretty uncommon. Most people don't have those kinds of problems. And what about resistance? Are there patients who initially look like they are responding and then don't? Yeah, so we are starting to see that. When you get these drugs, there are a couple of things that can happen. One is sometimes it's sort of like going on chemotherapy. I mean, the CAT scans immediately start to improve. Patients start to feel better right away. And it's clear the cancer is shrinking. Sometimes it's really not that clear. And I've had patients where we don't really see much change on the scans. and, And really, time will tell if things are getting better or not. The third and most frustrating is sometimes the scans actually initially get worse. We call that pseudo-progression. And that's because, you know, scans do really just show us pictures, but we can't tell what's going on in the pictures. And when the immune system gets activated, it causes the tumors to get inflamed. And on a CAT scan, that makes them look bigger. Sometimes we even see new spots. And so over time, all that stuff kind of settles out. And in some patients, the treatments just seem to not stop working. We have patients now, as I said, years out now with no sign of cancer, but sometimes they do stop working. I've had a number of patients where we had initially good control of the cancer and then it started to progress. And that's an area that we're still trying to understand. You know, Is this an issue with the immune system just stopped doing its job for some reason? Or did the cancer develop another way to hide? And so that's where this PDL1 business is an oversimplification because it's not the only mechanism by which cancer cells can hide from the immune system. And we think that's probably the main way that this is happening. And so there's a whole now new generation of clinical trials looking at other ways to kind of overcome resistance, but, but it does happen sometimes. And how do patients typically take the drug in terms of the schedule and the route? So these are all intravenous because these are antibodies, and so they all have to be um, hooked up to IVs. The schedule varies, but typically it's either once every three or once every four weeks. So you come into the infusion center, get hooked up to an IV. They're pretty fast treatments. They take 30 to 60 minutes, and so it's not a real long time. The question that we're wrestling with is how long to keep people on these treatments, and that we just don't know the answer to. We know that some people who start out with these treatments. If you stop the drug, the immune system has kind of been trained to do its thing and continues to work. The the best example that I've seen of that is one of our very first patients who was on one of these trials, a young guy who had a specific type of colon cancer where we know that these drugs can be really effective. And so he was on a clinical trial. He had one dose of these drugs and he got all the bad side effects. So his immune system went absolutely haywire. And in fact, we thought it wasn't working because everything got worse on his scans. But then over time, he got better and his scans started to get better to the point that he only had two spots left in his liver. All the other carriers of cancer were gone. We had a surgeon go in and take those out. And under the microscope, you guys looked at it for us. There was no cancer left. It was just what we call fibrosis, just scar. Um, And he's still cancer-free coming up on seven years. He had one dose perfect example of how, you know, you don't necessarily need to stay on these drugs, but that's not true of everyone. I mean, he's an exception. And so 
Sometimes uh, we continue these drugs indefinitely. I have one patient who's been on it for about five years now. And partly he is just so nervous to go off of it. He has stage four lung cancer and frankly was dying before he started these drugs. In my practice, generally continue them for a year. And if the scans have been stable at that point, at that at that time, I generally go off of these drugs. And I have a number of patients now who've been off for many years who took it for a year and they're doing just fine. I don't know if that's the right thing to do. Nobody knows for sure, um, but but it feels like about the right amount of time to me. And that's another area we need to have a better understanding of. Yeah, it sounds like the challenge is trying to predict who's going to respond quickly, who needs more time, who might need multiple therapies at once, almost like HIV sort of cocktail treatment. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a study that was out recently. So, you know, we'll we'll science our way around this eventually. But um, so I thought this was a really interesting study. So they looked at patients with lung cancer who had been on these drugs, and what they did was they measured for cancer DNA in their blood. So this is actually a test we do pretty frequently now um, because we can actually tell cancer DNA from your DNA because it has different mutations. And then they took these patients off of the immunotherapy after they'd been on it for a year. The patients who still had measurable cancer DNA in their blood had an 80% risk of the cancer coming back. The patients who didn't have cancer DNA in their blood, less than 15% of them, the cancer recurred. So I think we'll probably have ways to do this in a smarter way, whether that'll be the test or be something else, I don't know. But um, but the other reason that's really important, these drugs are stupidly expensive. I, I mean, they're very expensive. And so I think from an economic standpoint, we need to figure out what the sweet spot is for continuing these treatments so that we're not giving people who don't need these crazy expensive drugs longer than they need them. Yeah, because it sounds like they're coming in monthly, but then are you seeing them once a month, too, to make sure there's no side effects? You know, we do initially. Um, the people who get really bad immune side effects, they often do occur pretty early on. Once patients have been on it for a while, for me, it's the three-month mark, and we're not having any problems. I'll usually then just go to every other treatment visits because it really gets to be a burden. And frankly, I can only so many times say, you're doing fine. And one last question. Do patients have to be stage four to be eligible? So right now, the vast majority of approvals are only patients who are stage four. There are a couple of areas where that's starting to change. So some patients with stage three lung cancer, we can use it to help reduce the risk of the cancer coming back. In patients with melanoma, it is actually a standard treatment after surgery for high-risk patients from coming back. And then actually just earlier this year, it was approved for a type of bladder cancer that hasn't metastasized to keep it from coming back. So I think more and more we'll see it approved for lots of different cancers after surgery. We just need to finish these trials to determine if that's going to work for all cancers because it, it probably won't for every cancer, but I think more and more it will. Any other thoughts about immune therapy as far as the history, your experience, or challenges that you have with it? Yeah, you know, I think the biggest issue with immunotherapy is the fact that it doesn't work most of the time. I mean, it is an amazing treatment when it works, but the sad reality is it's only a minority of patients in which it works. And so finding out better ways to approach it, um, understanding why it isn't working in some patients and is working in others. I mean, I think that's sort of our biggest challenge right now. I think that this will be the cornerstone of treatment for a lot of patients 
Right now with advanced cancer, we're going to see these drugs being used early and earlier though. And, and I think we're already starting to see this um, start to happen clinically, but I think this will also become a cornerstone of preventing cancer from coming back. And we're still waiting for results of some of those trials, but it doesn't work for everyone. This won't replace the other kinds of treatments that are still really important. I think it's another tool in the toolbox, a really important tool in the toolbox, but it's still going to require other approaches to treat cancer for patients where this is just not going to be an effective approach to them. But it has really been, I'll say it's been a fun time to be an oncologist, to have treatments like this. I wouldn't have dreamed of this when I was starting out my career 20 years ago, that we would treat, for God's sakes, lung cancer, one of the deadliest of all cancers, with a fairly non-toxic treatment and tell people, five years from now, you might be just fine and not lying to them. So it has been, it's been a really fun thing to be part of. It'll be interesting to see where it goes, but we still have a lot of work to do. Thanks for listening to this episode of ScopeMD. A special thanks to Dr. Joe Leach, for sharing his insights and experiences with immunotherapy. See the show notes for the journal article Dr. Leach referenced during this interview, as well as additional online immunotherapy resources. Until next time, thanks for listening to ScopeMD.